Good morning, Faith. Uh, my name is Alan Cunningham. This is my wife, Gail. This morning, we will be reading scripture from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 52. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to bypass them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but the hearts were hardened. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. I particularly like that translation because of the uh, because some of the detail that I'm hoping to cover this morning as we go through that story a little bit. But I love, um, I love baptism, uh, Sunday as we prepare for it. I love testimonies from God's people because there's a rawness to it. There's a realness to it. It's not laden with Christianese and all the great churchy phrases and all that sort of stuff. There's some stammering. There's some nerves. There's some realness to it, right? Because God transforms real people. 
And rather than it just being hidden behind polish and religion and all these things, you get a sense that God has really done something profound in somebody's life. And if you notice, it seems like the common thread, really the common thread of all human experience is suffering and difficulty. I sometimes I wonder, why does every testimony seem to have to be built on? Well, I went through a hard time and you look and you scan life because we all go through some hard times. And that's when the Lord's getting our attention. He's speaking to us. He's coming through louder and clearer because like Alex said at the beginning, it was like going through the pain and the sickness. It became less about what I was borrowing from my parents and more about what God was saying to me personally. We don't really pay attention, do we, until it starts hitting home. Until it start, until it starts costing us something personally. And so I love that about our testimony time, and I hope that you're encouraged by it. You'll hear more next week, but perhaps you have a story that you haven't shared yet either. And I just want you to know that in this church, we want to hear those stories. We want to share them. Why? Because there are somebody sitting in those chairs that can relate to exactly what you said, the way you said it. Less so sometimes the way I might say it, or Pastor Tom, or Pastor Gary, or somebody else, but more so the way it comes from your life experience. And so we've got to be willing to, to, to let that megaphone be out there. So I'm proud of all of you that shared your story. I don't know if you noticed, but we try to do things on camera for the people that are shyer or that kind of thing. Did that seem to reduce the nerves? It doesn't, does it? They come in and they have lights on them. They have two camera angles. They have all these people, okay, speak into this and let's test this and everything. You're going, ah. So, you know, there's no way to fully reduce these nerves, but that's the cost. That's the price that we pay in order to testify the greatness of our God. I find that as we evaluate um, how much we're going to get into a story that talks about a miracle, right? We've been talking about this as we go through John. We're in chapter six. And last week we were examining the, uh, the multiplication of bread right before the eyes of thousands and thousands of people in a crowd. And the bread keeps on coming. Jesus is just distributing it through a handful of people and it keeps on coming. And what we thought was best rather than just saying the cute little Sunday school story, putting the little flannel graph things up on the board and say, this is how Jesus did it. And we have little baskets that we can hand out and everyone taste a piece of bread and get it. We had to think about what is it about the miraculous? What is it about the abilities that God has that draw us in? And how sincere is our interest in his power? How truly motivated are we to find the point in the miracle as opposed to just appreciating the miracle and then consuming it on our so often selfish desires? And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to pump the brakes a little bit on just reading the story, making some quick application and move on, but instead put ourselves in the crowd. If Jesus were breaking the bread and dispersing it amongst my family and my friends, how open would I be to having my jaw drop say, there's something unique about this man and we better figure out what it is as opposed to sweet. This is great bread. Where do we get more? And that's typically where we fall down. So we get to this story now where Jesus is going to do the miraculous. He is going to literally walk on water. And, and the more that we Christians, we, we say we believe these things or we teach these things, we study these things, we read them in God's word, even for us, the longer we go through this kind of cynical age and everything we think has got a scientific answer. And if we can't explain it scientifically, it must not exist. And you sound like an idiot for believing something you can't prove. Even we 
that have heard this lesson perhaps for, for years and years, or our Sunday school teacher put the little flannel graph pictures on the board. We even are becoming less and less uh, um, um, anchored in the belief that this really happened. And often we start to reduce these stories to moral lessons and, and simple applications. And what Jesus really meant to say or what he did was this, and then we can take it home and feel good about things. But there is a point to this story that if we're not careful, we can be like the crowd who just like the taste of the bread and follow Jesus around from city to city to get more of it. When you and I get further and further away from the miraculous, I want to be careful how I say this now because this isn't going to turn on a dime and I'm going to start saying we're going to start praying for all these kind of weird things to start happening in the room and follow us home and all this kind of stuff. But if we lose the fact that our faith is built on the miraculous... Even as silly as it might sound to so many that there was a flood and there was an ark built and the animals came two by two and we're like, you don't still believe that, do you? If, if I don't believe that, then can I believe in a virgin birth? And if I can't believe in a virgin birth, can I believe in the purity of a savior? And can I believe in the resurrection of the dead that even after he laid his life down for my sins, rather than just being some, some noble hero or some, some cultural warrior, that he was in fact the son of God and that he rose from the dead victorious over the grave and therefore victorious over my sins. You see, when I start compromising on God's ability to perform the miraculous, I lose sight of the fact that there was a mission that he was sent for, which was to save me from my sins. Trevin Wax warns us, particularly in this culture where we struggle to to say some of these things out loud because it just sounds so silly. He says, many people want to maintain something resembling Christianity since they believe religions are good when they provide us with purpose and make us kinder and more decent to others. But such attempts to keep part of Christianity without the whole or to revise it according to our preferences only leaves us unsatisfied. And that's what we're seeing melt down in the world today. I want to pigeonhole the God of the Bible. He's good for these purposes and these truths, but not these other ones. I think he's capable of doing this, and I think his his life was a moral code or a lesson, but if you're going to tell me he started walking on water and distributing, the, let's not, I think the story got carried away. The challenge that we have with that is if we're going to get anything from the Bible, then we need to believe the Bible where it says to be literally believed. So if he's breaking bread, and the story doesn't say it was a trick, that he had a stash that just happened to be able to feed 15, 20,000 people at the drop of a hat. Or as some would say that as he's walking on the water, he didn't really walk out on the water. There was a series of boulders and rocks on the shoreline. And now seriously, this is in some theological books. When you see people on TV, that says theologian. It doesn't mean that they're trying to prove the existence of God or they're trying to teach others on how to have faith in it. A lot of times people have made careers in trying to explain the Bible and its events away. And some of these quote unquote theologians have said that Jesus was simply just hopping rocks. And yeah, they were out there for hours and hours, but they were just kind of going lateral instead of straight across. And so he was able to be, you know, it's just, it gets silly. The Bible doesn't give us room to have some kind of hybrid God that only does a few things that blow our minds or drop our jaws, but he's not capable of doing these other things. He either is everything the Bible says or he isn't. 
So when we come to this passage and we see that Jesus is about to walk on water in a storm, we have to recognize that in today's day and age, not only is it the they and them out there that have a hard time believing this, but you and I wrestle with that doubt day in and day out, do we not? And it's okay for God's people to admit that. The disciples did right away. Lord, we believe in you, but help us with our unbelief. There's parts of this we can't square. There's pieces of this that I can't make sense of. And so if you're God, you've got to be bigger than my comprehension. And I need to be okay with the fact that I can't figure out everything you do or everything you're up to. Enter the equation of suffering. The difficulties, that common thread that goes all through our life. We have a tendency to believe that if, if, if suffering, what is the, what is the main question that so many people ask Christians? If God is so good, why is there suffering in this world? Our, our direct correlation to the realness of God, our belief in God instantly goes to what you and I feel in this life. The experiences that we have, the things that go against us or the things that we don't think we deserve. Sometimes we package it a little bit more nobly. There's a person over here that I care about and they don't deserve all of that. So if they're going through suffering, I can't believe in God. But ultimately what we're admitting is I'm going through things I don't think I deserve. Things have happened to me that I didn't ask for. So how can God be real? I don't mean to speak for all of you, but I've got a hunch and I think that most of us would admit that that's when our faith is tested the greatest. I don't really have a problem believing that God can do the miraculous. If God is real, I expect him to be able to do things I can't explain. But when things happen to me, I start to go, well, maybe he's not so real. And you pay me to believe in him. I'm just kidding. That's crude. Just joking. The point... And there are several, but the point that God is making, I believe, in this illustration, in this story, is this giant metaphor that's playing out for us, that if Jesus is walking on the water, he's not just doing it to show that he can for the sake of impressing the audience. Everything that Jesus did, every miracle that he, that he conducted, every word that came out of his lips was to point us in a direction. So we'd have to ask, what is he pointing us towards in this story? I have several points that we could make about this, and I've only selected a few. Um, but there's a lot of different directions that we could go, and these are in no particular order other than the fact that we'll kind of follow the order of the passage. I said to you over the last couple of weeks that um, this miracle shows up in three different gospel accounts, the, um, the miracle of the breaking of bread. And the multiplication of the bread shows up in all four gospel accounts, but this one is in three. And now you've heard the two other accounts other than just John. That's why we've had our readers read two other passages over the last couple of weeks so that we can grab some of the details that John didn't want to include or wasn't led to include by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to borrow a little bit more from the passage that we heard last week in Matthew, and then we'll dip into the Mark passage that we heard today. All the while kind of keeping it grounded, hopefully, in John. We don't have much time to do this in. And so uh, pardon me if it feels a little bit rushed through here. But let's go to Matthew 14 to see that the reason, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why 
Jesus walked on the water in the midst of a storm was because he wanted us to understand that God will send us into storms or even allow certain storms to take place in our life to accelerate our maturity. This is what he says in verse 22 of Matthew 14. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. There's a reason why he ends up separated from them. At least in the disciples' mind, there's some logical steps as to why Jesus isn't going with us. He said, we've got to move this crowd along. People are starting to show up in in massive crowds and they're liking what they're hearing. They're liking what they're seeing. And Jesus is seeing, not because it's occurring to him, but he's seeing how their expectation of what he came to be versus what they wanted from him was all off kilter. So disciples get into the boat and and you're going to go to the other side. I'm going to handle the crowds. We're going to send them away. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. For you and I to understand first and foremost why the difficulty is occurring in our life or why it occurs even in the lives of the people that we love. We have to understand that there's a possibility that God may have sent us into certain environments to allow for this test to come. Sort of the age old question that we debate is, does God make bad things happen to people or does he use them for his purposes? And I think this story will help demonstrate some of the delicate balance that we have to engage in if we're going to start to answer those questions. There's this balance of trusting in the sovereignty of God that because he's outside of my understanding and he's bigger than my comprehension, I've got to allow some room in my mind and in my heart to accept the fact that he may have some things planned for me that I just don't think I deserve or shouldn't have to go through. And then on the other side of that, we start to balance out with the fact that, but he didn't create evil. He didn't, he didn't want to use evil. He built us for a peaceful existence in the garden. He created us to be in perfect fellowship with him that we by our sin created that rift between us and the holiness of God so that now everything that he's dealing with is is kind of like how to put it in our crude terms like a plan B since evils in the world I'm going to use whatever the world presents in the lives of my children to strengthen them and to mature them. There's that balance. There's that tension. And then so we start to wrestle with well this was really tragic. Would God have made that happen? And if so, is he real? How could a good God allow these things to take place? What we start to see here is that Jesus is going to use things that can be explained. There's, there's no sudden storm that Jesus is on the hill and starts whipping up the wind and saying, I'm going to see what I can do to these disciples. They're going through a, a sea basically a like a glorified lake that is in the middle of a rift and there's a sea elevation changes the the lake is hundreds of feet below uh, sea level the mountains around are thousands of feet above sea level it's very common for these experienced fishermen to say boy we have to go across the lake i hope we don't get one of those one of those swirls one of those wind gusts i hope we don't have to deal with one of those very common occurrences that happens in life and that's exactly what they encounter Sometimes we get a little hung up on the things that we can explain and, and we put uh, all this um, uh, pressure on the Lord's work as though everything is, is out to get us or he sent everything and Jesus is going, 
No, it was just a Tuesday night, man. They were just going across and the, the swirl came through and caught up their boat. And they're having to wrestle with it. The text doesn't say that he caused the wind for this event, but he certainly used it. But that's helpful to us, is it not? We, we start to comprehend a little bit. Would God use the events in my life that he didn't send or wish on me, but knew they were coming and prepared me for it? It also is hinted to us in the text that he's messing with the disciples' plans and with their expectations because if we were to borrow just a simple little phrase from John 6 and verse 17, it says, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So there was an expectation that if we don't see him by a certain period of time, perhaps we need to launch and go. And God again is saying, this is not on your timetable. Your expectations are not moving me to uh, meet a particular time period on how and when I will work. It's been said before that God speak to, speaks to us through the regularity with which he interrupts our plans. I see a lot of normal happening in this. I see a lot of normal in the sense that if you're one of the disciples, you're thinking, man, we've had this, this incredibly successful campaign. Thousands upon thousands of people are eating every word of our new buddy, the guy who's leading the whole movement and his campaign is on, on full tilt and there's no mistake that we can make now. And all of a sudden Jesus says, yeah, we're going to shut this down. And there's probably that regular anguish, that regular kind of like, why would we lose momentum now? And why are you sending us away? We don't want to be out of your sight. Things are going so well, man. You're the coolest person we've ever met. Don't send us away. Jesus says, you need to go. We're going to disperse this crowd. We're going to change this up a little bit. We're going to get back to, we're going to stay on track with what this was all intended for. There's a normal letdown. And then there's a normal expectation. If you're sending us away, you're joining us, right? I mean, you're coming too. Don't let us get out of your sight. I'll be there. Don't worry about it. Just give me time to do what I need to do. And you worry about what I've asked you to do. So he sends them away. He sends them knowingly into a season of testing. And what we see is the storm becomes a fertilizer for their growth in Christ as storms are meant to be in our lives. We believers who know our Bibles, we love to quote Romans 8.28 because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We need to know this is going somewhere. It's somewhere good. The problem becomes is that we define our expectation of good, right? So verse 29 clarifies and qualifies for us. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for a particular purpose. He knew this trouble was coming. He knew this test was going to be there. What was the purpose that he had predestined? To conform to the image of his suffering son. To be like the one who led by sacrifice. To be like the one who was willing to take whatever the, his father allowed to come his way. Even in the midst of the garden when he calls out to the Lord. and says if, if, if it's possible to let this cup of suffering pass from me. If there's any other way. And his father says there isn't. And Jesus knew that. So he said nevertheless your will be done. If that's the image that, that God knew beforehand that he was going to conform his children to, then we would have to see that all of the testing that comes our way propels us towards that end. What we're going to see as we get further into John 6, 
We're going to see that, as verse 66 says, that as many uh, of his disciples turned their back on him, they no longer walked with him. That there is a turning away that happens when we start to face the reality of what we're being called to. When I think that the the the, uh, the predestination aspect of this is to be conformed to his suffering son, I might start to take my ball and go home. Here's what we need to understand is that all believers are disciples. All believers are students of the Lord. All believers are followers of Jesus Christ, but not all disciples are believers. Why would God allow certain storms in our life? Why would God send us into seasons of testing? It's to accelerate our maturity. Let's continue in verse 25 of Matthew 14. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. I, I love that that's the moment that they're freaked out. These fishermen, these experienced, you know, nautical guys and everything, they're not, there's no record of them being concerned while they're just paddling going nowhere. There's probably this great reserve of, of human ability that says, we're going to figure this out. We've been in this situation before, but it's the moment that they think, it's a ghost. That's when they start freaking out and they turn into five-year-olds. They cry out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. Instantly, we see that Jesus is getting the point across to them that he commands the natural world. He's walking on the thing that threatens to drown them. He's, he's, he's demonstrating complete ownership and sovereignty over the things that so quickly sneak up on us and cause us trouble, do they not? There's so many miracles in this one story. We got to hear some of the other examples of them, or the other accounts of them from the Mark reading earlier. But not only does Jesus walk on the water, eventually Peter does too. The text tells us that once they pull him in the boat willingly, the wind goes away. Everything just quiets. And then a couple of the texts also tells us that the moment that they were in and received him, they arrive at the shore. Even though the text just said they were halfway, they were they're three and a half miles in on a seven mile wide sea. You ever find that there's a point where you're like, oh, I believe this and this, but I just can't believe that. You read this and you go, okay, he walked on water. That's nice. And oh, Peter did. Yeah, okay. He didn't quite make it all the way and stuff. That's nice and everything. Yeah, Jesus can calm the wind. He's done it before and everything. But, but are you asking me to believe that the moment he got in the boat, they were at shore? That just sounds impossible. Everything about this is impossible. And that's why it was done to show that he is the commander over the impossible. Colossians 1 tells us that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything answers to the sovereignty of God. There's a subtle warning for us in that. If we believe that everything is under the domain of the creator and that he demonstrates it by walking on his creation and, and causing it to calm and obey his commands, then all of the complaining that you and I offer to either to the heir or to our spouse or to our parents or to our bosses or any of that sort of stuff, if all things ultimately come under his domain, who is the complaining against? Verse 
We sometimes go, well, I'm not, I'm not complaining against God. He's not the one that made my boss a jerk. But, but the circumstances that I'm in, the job that I have, or the things that aren't going my way, or things like that, if I surrender to the Lord of Lords and the creation of all the universe, who, ultimately, whose fault is it that I'm not happy with my circumstances? But also we see in this that he brings relief when we've come to our end. These disciples, these experienced um, boats, guys and everything are going at 3 to 6 a.m. Just getting nowhere, exhausted and worn out. That's when Jesus arrives. Not early on, not at the threat of the storm. This is where our prayers go, right? I see a storm on the horizon. Lord, protect me from it. Don't allow it to come my way. Just keep me from it. I will know that you're faithful to me if I can go around the storm or the better yet, the clouds just move off. Jesus says, hey, you're going to feel some wind and rain. Your arms are going to get pretty tired. I will show up before it's over. He brings relief when we've come to our end so often in the storms and the hope and the presence of the, of the Lord. It's a timing thing. We've been seeing this play out. We saw uh, uh, Jesus at the at the wedding when the wine was running out or he comes to the uh, the people who are physically ailing and they didn't have it within themselves to be able to stand on their own or to be able to see. Or people are hungry and they don't have enough bread and there's no resources amongst the people hosting the event to provide for all the people that were there. We see it with the disciples rowing and just running out of strength and everything. What is the point? The point is we will eventually run to the end of ourselves and that's when God shows up and says, are you ready for me to be your strength and provision finally? We don't have time to get into it, but the Matthew passage also talks to us about the time that Peter was looking at Jesus on the water and says, if it's you, command me, come out, I want to walk. What happens to Peter? Kaplunk. Jesus says, why did you doubt you of so little faith? We want God to be in a hurry. We want him to take our resources and make us feel good about using them. And so it's so difficult to come to the end of ourselves, to be exhausted and worn out, just to let him be God and to do his thing. Why would he wait till 3 a.m. to show up and, and literally bail these guys out? MacArthur says that divine sovereignty, omnipotence, and omniscience are never in a hurry. Let me say that again. Divine sovereignty, which is control over this whole thing. Omnipotence, which is ultimate power over the circumstances and all the things involved. And omniscience, knowing how this is going to go, knowing how it's going to turn out, all knowing, would never need to be in a hurry. I experienced this, my wife and I experienced this many, many years ago uh, with one of the gazillion times that we were in the delivery room. Um, early on, it was early on. And, uh, it's one of the few that I remember a lot of the details of because I was in, even though I was starting to get a little more practice of this, I still wasn't quite like, I'm not great with all the, the medical stuff and the gore of this and that and everything. So I got a man up. I really got to be like, okay, I'm there for her. And I'm really in, I'm wanting to go back to the old days of like, just, I'm going to be out in the waiting room and give me a cigar when it's all over that kind of thing. But no, you can't do that now. You got to be supportive. So I'm being supportive, but I'm not doing a great job because, uh, uh, you know, Chris Small has a tendency to say, oh, look, we're having a baby. Boom. There it is. Wah, wah, wah. It's over. Like just like a machine. Baby's born. Everything's good to go. All that kind of stuff. 
And uh, we had this with with one of our uh, children. We had a doctor who wasn't quite cooperating on the time schedule that I was comfortable with. And I had already seen this happen a couple of times. And I'm like, hey, if she says it's time to push, you know, pretty much we're going to be teaching that kid how to drive next week. I mean, that's just how fast everything goes. And he was still out at the nurse's station, you know, just talking. It's like he just got back from vacation. He was just taking his time. And I'm out in the hallway going, uh, 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 doctor, uh, it's time and everything. And he's got his little styrofoam cup of coffee and he just looks and he smirks at me like typical inexperienced dad. You know, just, he's all nervous and he's all this and he's just laughing at me and he comes walking in. He's got a big grin. He goes, I haven't finished my coffee. I'm like, hurry up. The baby's coming. She came fine. He was there with plenty of time. I looked like the panicked, inexperienced, you know, ghost white guy going, hurry up. And he was just relaxed and calm because he's done it a million times and knew how this would go. Now, every once in a while, we can catch him off guard, can't we? They all act like they know what's going on. It's like sometimes it catches them off guard. This guy was ready. He was prepared. He knew how this would go. And I wasn't comfortable with it, even though he was perfectly right the whole time. Do I not treat the Lord like this? His timing stresses me out. I have so many better ways in which he could have stepped in earlier. We could have avoided all this if this wasn't, you know, we go through that. We need to reach the end of our physical selves and trust the fact that God has all knowledge, all power, and he has all control over the things that go on in our lives. Easy to say, very difficult to do, is it not? I think another exa- another reason why we go through these things is to learn the difference between phony and real trouble. Let me just make this point very, very quickly as we're wrapping this up. I believe that God sends storms our way to lead us away from real danger. When we see a storm, we see the lightning, the thunder, the flooding, all that kind of stuff. We think that's the real danger. But see what was developing in the lives of these disciples and what was happening with a crowd is there was, if we go back to John 6 and verse 15, it says that Jesus saw that what the crowd was getting ready to do was to take him by force and make him king because of what he did with the bread. They were like, that's it. This is going to be our guy. We're going to ride this political wave and get our nation back. We're going to, we're going to get established. We're going to all these sorts of things. The real danger, the real threat looming had nothing to do with what these guys were experiencing in the middle of the sea. It was the fact that they were starting to probably go, Hey, wait a second. This is working. And where is right hand man? Like we're going to get ascended and elevated in this whole entourage as well. You see, Jesus understands the spiritual threats that are coming our way. He understands the temptations that you and I have, that when things are going well, when things are successful, that we have a tendency to walk away from our dependence on him. So sending us into a choppy lake from time to time, getting us to the end of ourselves and realize I don't really have the control over this like I thought I did ends up becoming the savior in our lives before we start falling into worse dangers. That every once in a while, it's good for us to experience the limitations of who we are so that it humbles us to say, I don't really have control over the things that I think I do. Obsessing over avoiding physical dangers, and not just physical dangers in terms of ailments and things, but the things of this physical world, 
Obsessing over physical dangers leaves us vulnerable to eternal consequences. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Storms come our way to help us learn the difference between phony and real trouble. So what are we saying? Storms are in our life because... Sometimes they're just natural occurrences. Sometimes we end up on a sea that's all in the midst of this perfect sea level kind of thing that the winds come through and whip us up. It's because of the world that we live in. We're going to have things happen to us. Coming to Jesus doesn't protect us from those things. Jesus says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Often, if not all the time, these things are allowed to occur in our lives as tests to see what we're going to cling to in the midst of the storm. They can be for our correction, either disciplining us for wrongdoing or to just keep us grounded. How many of the disciples in the moment, say four in the a.m., say, oh, I know why this is happening to us. I know why we're about to go under because I stole that fish when I was four years old from the market on the corner. We do that, don't we? The reason why I'm going through this is because God's making me pay for. What if he's just trying to shape you up now and trying to ground you? Also, it's a demonstration. I think this is the biggest reason why the Lord sent them to where they were going was to demonstrate that, to, to demonstrate the proof that God is above it all and can be trusted that he is exercising a greater mission. So it's incumbent upon us to exercise a greater faith to, to willingly embrace the next storm, knowing that he will find you in it. One of the passages in Matthew fourteen thirty three says that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. If the storms of our life are not leading us to the conclusion that he is the one worthy of our worship, then we've missed the lesson in it. We are to practice a greater worship. And then lastly, we offer a greater welcome. John six twenty one says that they were glad to take him into the boat. This is the fix to the storm problem, but it was the whole point. The culmination of this is that Jesus would come to them. They were afraid to receive him at first. They didn't know what he was all about. When they saw it was the one that they had trusted, they knew it was the one that had done all the things that they had seen before. They willingly welcomed him into the boat and everything changed. What are you waiting for? You've seen people's testimony today that they've welcomed Jesus into the boat when they're in the storms of their life. And some of you might be from a perch of relative ease. Maybe you haven't gone through that kind of suffering or something. And you see this whole Christianity is for those who need the crutch and that kind of thing. At what point will you recognize that Jesus wants to be welcomed into the boat and that you will take him in and then worship him for the God that he is? That's the challenge on us this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's pray together. Lord. I want to thank you, Father, for all that you've done. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you have led us to you and to your power, Lord. And I just thank you, God, that you have done enough. So often we get caught up in asking you for the next thing, the next bailout, the next miracle, Lord. But you have proven your strength. You've proven your glory. You've proven your sonship. And so I pray, God, that we would trust in even the works that have already been done. That we wouldn't be guilty like the followers who would say, what are you going to do next? Lord, there are so many that are hurting and struggling. They are going through things that they can't explain. 
and have yet to meet you in it, Lord. I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them. Impress through their fear, Lord, to give them the grace and the confidence and the courage to allow you into their boat. Thank you, Lord, for how much you love us and how patient you are with us, Lord. We pray it would only continue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.